If you look at North Dakota, last year it was too dry. This year it's too wet. I mean, you can't win, you know, and, and this is really the thing to think about in the context of climate change. Predictability, volatility has become a factor that we're dealing with and one that our systems are not sort of designed to, to deal with. And so a very big sort of worrisome thing that we're tracking today is that the world as a whole, whether you look at major exporters such as the US and, and Brazil and Argentina, or major importers such as the Middle East, North Africa, and the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa, there's pretty persistent and abnormal droughts pretty much everywhere that you would not want a drought today. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Manker. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Grow Intelligence has spent the past eight years building up the world's largest AI platform dedicated to addressing two existential challenges facing humanity, food security and climate change. It is an AI-powered data and analytics company that focuses on agriculture and food security, as well as the effects of climate change on business, governments, and the economy. Prior to founding Grow, Sarah was a vice president in Morgan Stanley's Commodities Group. She began her career in commodities risk management, where she covered all commodity markets and subsequently moved to trading, where she managed an options trading portfolio. Sarah received a BA in economics and African studies at Mount Holyoke College and the London School of Economics and an MBA from Columbia University. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I'm an admirer of your important work at Grow Intelligence, where you're helping governments, public policy experts, and companies understand and forecast the impact of climate change and weather and the way it affects people with great specificity by location around the world. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. So let's start at the beginning. You were born and raised in Ethiopia. Tell us about your upbringing there and some of the lessons and inspirations you drew from your early experiences in Africa. I was born and raised in Ethiopia into a very large family, first of all. My mom has 24 siblings uh, and she's the oldest of 25 children. <laughs> So I was born into a, a pretty large family and, you know, had a, you know, I grew up in Ethiopia during the 80s where Ethiopia was defined by, by famine, um, you know, where the images of what most people understood Ethiopia to be was, was that it was, it was, you know, it was live aid um, at the time. That was sort of the way in which the country was defined. Um, and so, of course, I grew up with a deep understanding of and at least connection to understanding like issues of food security, et cetera. And so I think that awareness obviously influenced sort of the way I've built my career since. But, you know, born and raised there and, and large family, pretty strong family uh, <laughs> and, and ended up having a, getting a scholarship um, to come to the U.S., which is how I ended up in college um, in the U.S., so you first came to the U.S. when you had a scholarship at Holyoke. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I came to Mount Holyoke. Yeah. So that, that had to have been quite a change, right? And were you, were you the first member of your family to, uh, to, to come to the U.S.? So funny enough, not, but for very different sort of circumstances. So my 
grandfather, my father's father, was a journalist, um, and he was also the assistant to um, the emperor of Ethiopia at the time, Emperor Haile Selassie. And he orchestrated the plot to kill Graziani. And so anyway, my grandfather had been sent by the emperor to Ohio, <laughs> to a very tiny university in Ohio, where he didn't do quite well, but he actually was one of the first four Africans to come uh, to the U.S., and came back and then obviously, you know, was was executed by Mussolini, but was it, it, it was sort of a, a full circle because my father didn't go to college and my mother didn't go to college. So I sort of restarted that cycle from from that end. And you did. And so you you had four years at Holyoke and then you spent your early career at Morgan Stanley. What drew you to finance and what lessons did you learn as a trader on, on Wall Street? So, so how I ended up in finance is, you know, uh, in some ways, luck <laughs> and just circumstance and serendipity. You know, I was actually determined to go do a PhD in economics. I mean, if you think of where I grew up in, in Addis, it was the political hub for Africa and the Economic Commission for Africa, which is the UN's entity that's based in Addis. That was my dream job was to go work at, at, at an institution like the UN. And I thought I needed a PhD. And so it was clear to go do a PhD until I ran into somebody at a Starbucks who convinced me I should apply for a finance internship. And I did that <laughs> and it ended up going really well. And I also realized that, you know, I could stay in the US, uh, frankly speaking, and, and sort of make a living. I wasn't being supported by my family. So it sort of, I fell into it versus dreamt it, uh, but it ended up you know, being a lot of fun. And it's interesting because I think many, many people aren't career engineers, right? They, 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 they find their way. And so, so you, you started a career in finance at Morgan Stanley, and you sure spent time as a commodities trader on Wall Street. So talk about that and what you learned and what you took away from that experience. Yeah, so I was uh, I was not only a commodities trader, I was an options trader. I remember when I first sort of, you know, moved from, I started in risk management actually at first. And I think that, first of all, prepped my mind in terms of thinking of risk and risk across a portfolio very differently. It was almost like a lucky start to a career because by the time I sort of moved to a trading desk, which is about a year and a half after starting, I had a slightly different mindset to sort of how I wanted to trade. But I, you know, sat next to my boss at the time and, and you know, he said, listen, you've already shown that you can do a lot in sort of your previous role. And we had worked closely together. He said, there's only one rule you need to remember about trading options. Never sell a cheap option. If you do that, <laughs> you will always succeed. And so, you know, one thing that you asked me, like how my experiences on Wall Street have influenced me. If you give me a set of any documents today, I always look for the cheap option that somebody's trying to get me to sell because that's the thing that always comes to get you, you know, down the line. Yeah. And there's just something about living in markets, right? Because it takes a tough constitution going to bed at night when you're actually marking to market every day, right? I always say that, you know, it, it's, in some ways, when I when I quit Morgan Stanley to 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 eventually start grow, you know, they were trying to convince me to be prepared one more time. Like maybe you should move from trading into another role to help you understand how to manage a business or to do deals differently and all this stuff. And I 
said, no, I think the only way to learn is if I go and if I fail, I fail. And the downside is I lose money. And I was okay with that at the time. But, you know, the thing I always say is the trading prepared me the most for building a company without me even knowing it because you know, you're defined by your daily PL and you live the ups and downs and you have to have conviction. And so all these things that actually matter towards like operating and building a business were lessons I learned in my 20s. So what led you to leave Morgan Stanley to start your own business, you know, Grow Intelligence? Yeah. So, you know, the 07, 08 crisis for me was a very defining moment personally. I had a colleague who truly, you know, the depth of the crisis, you know, who truly just believed the world was coming to an end. Obviously, we were watching our stock price like plummet and, you know, the world seemed topsy-turvy. And he's like, the world's coming to an end. The world's coming to an end. And all he did was buy gold, like literally he bought gold bullions, gold ETFs, physical gold. And he also bought a lot of guns because he actually thought he needed to protect himself. And so at some point I, I said to him, you know, first of all, this is not the end of the world. It sucks if Morgan Stanley stock goes to zero, but I've lived close to the end of the world. I grew up on rationed food, rationed fuel. Like that was my life growing up. I know what that looks like. This ain't it. It sucks, but this ain't it. Second of all, if the world came to an end, are you going to eat a bar of gold? Or do you really want to own some land and have some potatoes instead? So to spite him, I started looking at investing in agricultural land so I could give him a sack of potatoes for a bar of gold one day. And that sort of opened my eyes to sort of the agricultural industry and led me down a over a four-year journey of just understanding the depths of it, but just the, the fundamental flaws in our food systems. And I became so, so passionate about those questions that, you know, four years after asking questions of why while well, trading oil and gas, I just had to go do this. Right. And I remember you you initially were looking and saying, maybe I should be even be buying some land in Ethiopia, right? But then the idea evolved over time. So what is the problem you're trying to solve and grow? And how are you solving it? You are integrating artificial intelligence and technological algorithms and industry experts to give decision makers actionable advice, because there's a lot of people right now saying, what's happening to food around the world and agriculture, or what's going to be the impact of climate change? So talk a little bit about what you're doing and what you're trying to solve at GROW. Yeah. And I think I love how you frame the question, which is what problem are you solving? Because to me... I left Morgan Stanley to solve a problem. I didn't fall in love with the technology and go find a problem to solve with it. So technology, AI, machine learning, all these things became an enabler to solving this, this problem. And the core of the problem at the time was, you know, I was constantly hearing conversations and this was, you know, this is when the narrative of how do we feed 9 billion people by 2050 had sort of emerged. And I kept hearing it over and over again. And yet every time I asked questions, whether about Ethiopia and looking at investing in farmland in Ethiopia or about markets in the U.S., every answer I was getting was somewhat stale. And to me, the thing that I was always remembering is I go to work every day and I know what every molecule of gas across every pipeline across America was doing to make a decision. And it seemed that the sort of industry as a whole and the agricultural system as a whole was trying to solve a problem where it didn't have the key ingredients to understanding that problem to then do it. And so 
it was to say, how do we build a platform that becomes an enabler and creates a standardized set of knowledge and, and sort of data that then can drive policy decisions, it can drive capital allocation decisions more effectively, but it's, it's about how does, how does data and how does information become infrastructure to driving sort of systematic change in the industry. And, and, and really that was, that was the goal that we set out to do and, and saying, if we did that, we can really solve for global food security. Right. So t- tell us a little bit about your clients from the private sector and the government and the type of advice they're seeking. What, what are they really looking for as, they, as they're making decisions? Yeah. So maybe let me take a step back first and explain what the GROW platform is right. today. Um, And so, you know, like I said, the goal there was how do we build information infrastructure? So that meant, and this is where my naivete was probably in my favor because I didn't realize how difficult it would be to be able to build this technical infrastructure. (laughs) But, you know, energy was much easier to do. How do you build a platform that can help you predict the supply, the demand, the trade, and ultimately prices of every agricultural product on earth every day? Now, if you think about what that means, that's not just for corn or wheat or soybeans for products that are traded on exchanges, but it's also for vanilla beans and black pepper and livestock and dairy. So it's sort of the full spectrum of the agricultural system. So we built a platform that ingests very large, very disparate data sets that can come from governments, satellites, private companies like exchanges where we license the data. We get this from 47,000 different sources today. The first thing that we did is standardize that data. So once you standardize it, you now have a stitched understanding of the global system. And then the thing we had to do was actually build models using machine learning and AI to say, how do we make that data more up-to-date? How do we complete data gaps that exist in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Russia, Ukraine, places where there are large populations, but transparency is very low? How do we build predictive models? And so today in our platform, it's less about the data and more about the models. We have over 2 million models that are related to these different components. And so when you ask, how do you interact with your clients? It's really about mixing and matching those different models for different types of decisions. So if you think of the three segments we serve, financial institutions, corporates, and public institutions. With financial institutions, we start with the easy ones. Think of quant funds. It is just getting large reams of, you know, we're processing hundreds of trillions of data points a day of data to find signals and trade off of them on an automated basis. So it's about the data quality. Sometimes it's about the models. Sometimes it's about the raw data we have. We have no idea what they're doing. In fact, we're just a consistent, reliable data provider. But then we also work with financial institutions like banks and, and, and insurance companies that would use our yield forecast models to actually look at insurance policies or lending rates against ag products and different companies that they lend to. Now, when you go to the companies themselves, if you're dealing with a CPG company, that CPG company would use our yield models for better procurement strategies in the short term, but they would use our land suitability model, which is looking at the suitability of land and where to grow what and when, to decide supply chain issues. And then lastly, you know, and this is, these are small examples, with governments, it's actually creating USDA-like infrastructure for national food security systems 
to better understand how to manage food security risks for nations. And when I first got to know you, Sarah, it was on climate, right? Yep. And so, you know, there are the cities, national governments, all kinds of institutions or, or private sector companies that are, that are saying, how is climate change going to impact my operations? How do I minimize risk? If you're a retailer, where should I build stores? Where should I be closing down stores? That kind of thing. Talk a little bit about how this is, has moved into a, a focus on climate change also, because you're looking at weather. Yeah. So, you know, when I when I mentioned how the GROW platform was built and it was to predict supply and demand, if you think about what drives the supply side of food markets and agricultural markets and the shocks, it's oftentimes weather and climate related shocks. So literally in the early days of GROW, in an effort to better build predictive models on the supply side of agriculture, we're modeling 80 percent of global production on a daily basis at this point. We were ingesting large amounts of environmental weather data and future climate projection data. So really looking at the past, the present, the immediate future and the long-term future to actually measure climate risks in agricultural supply chains. Now, what became very clear to us was you could replace that same infrastructure of, you could replace farmland with building, you could replace acres with square footage, and you could replace corn with the company or the entity that owns that building. And all of a sudden we had a geospatially explicit framework to measure climate risk of any physical asset anywhere on earth. And we had built this out you know, over eight years and so had this very robust engine to really start looking at how do we actually expand what we do in agriculture on the climate side to any physical asset on earth so that we can measure the both immediate as well as long-term climate risks for companies, for governments, and you know, for any type of institution that's managing any set of physical assets. So given all the disclosures that are going to be coming right now, as the SEC is increasingly going to be requiring companies to disclose their risk from climate, just like any other major economic risk, right? And so there's a whole lot of questions that people are going to be asking. So that's got to be a rapidly growing part of your business. Yeah, it's a rapidly growing part of our business. And I think we've been very lucky as a company that when these conversations were starting, already had a platform built. We were not catching up to the the dialogue, it was not like, oh, climate became a cool thing to do. And so therefore we were doing it. You know, I always say like food security was not a cool thing to work on. Now it's the only thing people can talk about, right? We're, I think we're in the business of always saying, what do we think are fundamental needs the world has? So we've been able to step in in a very major way. So, so let me ask you in terms of longer term, like one thing, for instance, if, if someone was looking to buy a, a ski cabin in some part of the world, and wanted to know where would be the best place to, to build it over, you know, for the next 40 years. Looking at a longer term, how, how good do you feel about the climate data you use, given how wrong some of the UN forecasts, these big consensus estimates, they've in, in some ways underestimated, you know, the speed with which this is moving. Talk a little bit about 
how your model works there. Yeah, that's really, it's a really, really good question and, and an important one because how, you know, if you think of the IPCC, first of all, it's not a single institution. Hundreds of labs contribute data into what becomes the IPCC report. See, the IPCC is a UN data, which is climate scientists from all over the world, right? Yeah, but there are about 100 labs that contribute the data, their projections into the IPCC. Right. So what our team and our climate science team did is study the 100 labs and actually identify the 25 or so best labs, then look at the parameters that are the best that come out of each labs based on the performance of how good their projections have been. And we've created an ensemble model that mixes the best of all labs. And so the projections we're using have been debiased and are actually calibrated to match sort of what the reality are. So the forecasts end up being as close as possible to what we have actually seen. So we've, we essentially, and this is the real benefit of the GROW platform and having all the historical data as well as we've been able to do that. So our forecasts are not just taking what comes out of IPCC, but really taking the best of each one so that when you're modeling sea level rise or wildfires or hurricanes, each peril has been tweaked to the best that it can be. Wow. So now I want to switch to talk about not that climate change isn't the huge issue of, of the day, but talk about the real tragedy of today we're all talking about, which is food security. And you've been a prescient voice when it comes to the challenges of global food security. You haven't just got into this in the recently, as we've talked about. And in 2017, you gave a TED talk where you warned that a global food crisis was less than a decade away. And you saw that coming. Now it looks like this crisis has arrived big time. So talk about the state of the global food system. And there's a whole lot of questions built into this we can talk about. You know, how is climate change driving the food crisis and weather? How do you see this playing out? What's the impact of the war in, in Ukraine? And I want to talk about that first. And then I want to move to the the advice you'd give governments, because you recently addressed and moderated a discussion at the UN National Security Council on this crisis. So you've come a long ways from starting off saying, well, someday you thought you might want to be an economist working at the UN, to you now you're talking to the UN National Security Council. But let's start with the climate change driving the food crisis and, and all these impacts. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say climate change has been one of the biggest disruptors. And the thing to think about in, in the context of this current food crisis is, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was adding fuel to a fire that was long burning. It didn't create it. And this is, and it, you know, you mentioning the 2017 talk is right in that we were structurally not set up to be able to deal with shocks and certainly not to deal with the fact that demand was going to outpace our structural ability to keep up on the supply side. And that's what's happened. And then on top of it, you've just had an unprecedented number of supply side shocks due to climate change over the last couple of years. Whereas South America had two consecutive years of drought, looks like it's going into a third year of drought. The U.S., I mean, has record drought this year, but guess what? It's had record drought every year for the last few years. And the West Coast, and then in, in, you know, in parts of sort of the Corn Belt and the, and the Soybean Belts of, of the United States, you know, if you look at North Dakota, last year, it was too dry. This year, it's too wet. I mean, you can't win, you know, and, and this is really the thing to think about in the context of climate change is 
predictability, volatility has become a factor that we're dealing with and one that our systems are not sort of designed to, to deal with. And so a very big sort of worrisome thing that we're tracking today is that the world as a whole, whether you look at major exporters such as the US and, and Brazil and Argentina, or major importers such as the Middle East, North Africa, and the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa, there's pretty persistent and abnormal droughts pretty much everywhere that you would not want a drought today. And so that's a real sort of shock and, and one that we have to still continue to manage around. And, and, and like I said, it doesn't mean that if drought goes away, it goes to normal. You could have too wet that follows, right? So, and, and I think that our sort of resilience factors have to be tweaked to how we think about inventories, how we think about our supply chains, because this is here to stay. So that's, I think, the climate component here. So talk about what we're seeing in East Africa, India, the climate factors, and then let's talk a little bit about Ukraine and then get to what you think government should be doing. Yeah, so, I mean, on the climate factors, you know, East Africa has a record drought right now, and it, you know, it's still relatively early in the growing season for most of the major sort of East African growing regions. But if sort of the rains don't pick up, then you're looking at potentially massive import needs from, you know, major populations across East and West Africa at a time when currency devaluations are also somewhere in the magnitude of 15 to 22%. So you can at least afford imports and you have a drought crisis. Yep. Egypt, you know, their currency hit hard. People already in the streets there, right? Then India gets hit, right? Hard. Yeah. And, in, you know, India is a really sort of interesting um, climate story because, you know, India, because of its green revolution, has for a long time been somewhat self-sufficient in its food supply. And on depending on the monsoon years, it swings around. And so some years, it can become a net importer. And on those years, it's a net importer. It's, it's sort of a travesty for the rest of the world. And a year like this, India has sort of buckled down and essentially said, you know, banning wheat exports because we need it for sort of local supply. So India is less a, this year, less immediately a climate story as it is a protectionist policy story, but it's, it's a heavily volatile environment. Yeah, and, and then the COVID impacts all of this because if China, as China, starts you know, unwinding their lockdowns and growing more normally, there's going to be a bigger demand coming from China, right? Correct. We just did a, a really interesting analysis on imports into China. So feed grain imports. So that's looking at wheat, corn, sorghum, barley, rice. So these are the things that you can use for animal feed and some get used for human, namely rice oftentimes is for human consumption. But because prices have been so high in wheat and corn, what you've seen is a record amount of import of rice and sorghum into China. But when you look at year-to-date, marketing year-to-date imports, despite the lockdown, they're on pace to matching the record imports of the 2020-2021 season. Now, if you think about what the 2020-2021 season was in China, China had already imported 143% more grain from the year prior. <laughs> because it was a record year. And we're already on pace to match that with a lockdown China. That's, to me, a major swing factor. A huge swing factor. Now, Russia invasion of Ukraine. Talk a bit about this. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about 
why all the predictions of you know, world hunger have been off by so much if you sort of look 30 years back, 40 years back, the, the real sort of agricultural miracles we've experienced are the Black Sea region, namely Russia and Ukraine, and South America, Brazil and Argentina. Those are essentially the regions that have stepped up to keep the world fed and sort of keep essentially supply and demand in balance. Now, you've essentially removed about 30% of world exports of wheat from the market at a time when going into this war, the inventory balances were already very strained and low. There were also major sunflower oil exporters. So you know, over 65% of the world's sunflower oil came from Ukraine. That got removed. So that impacted vegetable oil markets. And then you have fertilizer, which is a key input into sort of producing agriculture that we need and agricultural products that we need this year and years after that has also been disrupted. And replacing that overnight is near impossible. Frankly, replacing where it was, even if the war stopped tomorrow, is impossible because of just the infrastructural damage that has occurred. And I'd I heard some estimates that when you're looking at fertilizer and nitrates, for instance, that you know that a short call fall could mean that productivity is down 40% or by a big number. You know what's interesting, and you're the first to hear this because we go live with this just now, is we've now built the first, uh, the world's first nitrogen response curve-based estimates for how much production losses are going to be for major grains. So what we did is we took data for the International Fertilizer Association, an industry association of 400 fertilizer companies. We anonymized that data to get a sense for what demand impact has been. And then we actually modeled out the response to reduced nitrogen use, and then actually said, what's the total caloric loss we're now going to have? How many how many less people are we going to feed as a result of losses of just nitrogen-based fertilizers? So essentially, in a, in a scenario where the war persists, essentially, you're looking at less food for about 200 million people in the world. This is if this war persists just on nitrogen-based fertilizers. Now, where this gets dangerous is you also have potash and phosphate-based needs. And so this leads into a cascading multi-year effect, right? So really, we started with nitrogen because that's the immediate emergency and sort of what we need to replenish our soils with. But this is the first time that we've done it. And we're actually going to release it as a public good for the whole world. Some major, major impacts. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the UN, because when you aspired to be an economist, maybe working at the UN. So you, you were here, you are moderating a discussion at the UN National Security Council on the food crisis. So this this is sort of exceeds your wildest dreams, but it's what, what brought you there, of course, is a crisis none of us would have wanted. So what, what should governments do to respond? Yeah, and, and maybe a, a small sort of anecdote on, on why the UN, as I mentioned, my father never graduated from, from college, but his first job basically became working at the Economic Commission of Africa in the mail room. And he worked his way through that local UN system in Ethiopia for 37 years before he retired. I mean, he, you know, was this person. And so when I did that that day, all I could think of was actually him because I was like, my gosh, like what a long way our family has come. But going back to sort of advice for governments, 
I try to stay out of the advice giving business in general. I try to stay in the objective. Here's the data business. But these are hard times. And I think that there are some real policy levers and some real stress points. None are easy. But I think the biggest policy lever we have globally, and given that we have an oil crisis, um, is politically really difficult to accomplish, is biofuels. And to sort of alleviate some of the pain on global food prices. And the reason is we are using so much food from our systems between vegetable oils, sugar, and corn to produce biofuels. And so not removing biofuel mandates, but reducing them by one, two, 3% can have a materially outsized impact on alleviating and, and sort of ensuring supply. Now, that's a really hard challenge because of the reason that these mandates are in place or to fight climate change. And this is sort of the natural tension between ecological preservation and economic growth and, and sort of humanity. But it's it's been an issue I've been really grappling with. But it it seems like the biggest lever, because if you looked at the combined caloric intake of the biofuels industry, it is using calories enough to feed 1.9 billion people a day. That's the entire industry today. So we don't need to reduce it by that much. We just need to reduce it by a little, and we can save a lot of lives. And they're going to need a good number of short-term trade-offs right now when you're seeing it now just in terms of, of energy and some of the steps that we're going to have to take for climate change. Well, Europe just temporarily allowed you know, coal-fired power generation increases to, to battle the energy crisis in Europe. See, see, what a shock that is, because, you know, how many years has Germany known that they need to somehow other become more independent from Russia, right, and energy? But yet it took this war to, to really drive it home. So, Sarah, let's drive deeper into the, the problem of climate change. Because, you know, you're focused on this in such a big way. So how do you assess climate risk going forward? You know, it's economic, financial, political, health impact. You know, how big a deal is this? You know, it's, it's a pretty big deal, especially when you take into account that it's not the same impact for everybody everywhere, right? And... Yeah, I want to get into that too. So as you talk about it, talk about how it impacts different business sectors and regions that some are going to just be most heavily hit by this risk. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've built um, multiple sort of climate risk navigators. Um, it's these small applications we've built that we've loaded um, location-based data, demographic-based data sets to look at the effects of climate change on companies, to look at the effects of climate change on economies, etc. And what always shocks me is the spatial distribution of outcomes of where the most affected regions, for some reason, tend to also right now, or the regions that are going to be most affected, are the most populated regions in those countries. So if you look at a country like China, you know, the densely populated areas of Shanghai and Beijing and sort of economic centers are also the ones that are going to experience the highest temperature increases. And so you have, you know, the east versus west in a single country and the spatial distribution of outcomes is great. But when you population adjust outcomes, what you end up with and then you look at this on a global level, 
is you essentially look at outcomes disproportionately affecting areas that are already very densely populated, which includes parts of sub-Saharan Africa where poverty rates are already very high. Um, the other way to look at it is to look at it from a socioeconomic lens. So we recently did a study on the impact that heat waves are going to have on New York City, <laughs> where, I, where I am right now. And not just this summer, but into the future. And we're just about to release it. But it's, you know, what's shocking is when you map that to zip codes where minorities live and where income levels are actually really low, that's where you're also going to experience high levels of heat stress. And these are places where air conditioning becomes necessary, et cetera, and productivity rates of populations can go down. And so now you can hit productivity, which then has sort of bigger incomes, you know, bigger outputs on, on sort of overall economic output. So I want to switch one more time, Sarah, and come back to Sarah Manker, the entrepreneur. Now, you dealt with this a little bit at the beginning, but go a little bit further. What did it take to build Grow Intelligence? I know the mission and the business model, I guess the mission has stayed the same, the problem you're trying to solve, right? But the, but the, but the business model has evolved over time. What lessons do you have for, for other entrepreneurs? Keep going. May the naysayers always be fuel. I think because I was so passionate about solving the problem, I was willing to do whatever it took and make whatever sacrifices to make it happen, right? So one is sort of walking into it knowing that it will require sacrifices you just never imagined and, and being ready for that. You know, the second is, and this is going back to sort of lessons in trading, but, you know, trading requires a lot of grit. It requires a lot of not being defined by your highs and not, you know, not enjoying the highs too much so that you don't get too low when the lows come because they come all the time <laughs> and sort of, sort of being, you know, pretty balanced. You know, I, I always sort of live with this mantra that if you are doing what you believe is right, the rest sort of fixes itself. So just constantly just keeping focused on mission and vision and not playing by anybody's rule book. That was probably the hardest thing for me to do was to not follow a rule book, but rather create our own. Yeah. And that's what something entrepreneurs have. I remember taking a course when I was at Harvard Business School on the management of new enterprises. And we had all kinds of entrepreneurs come in. And then at the end, the professor said something very similar to this. Very few of you are going to be entrepreneurs. You've uh, gone to, to terrific schools. You've got good grades. You're here and you're going to do well. And so you're not going to be willing to go out and take the risk, right? You march to a different drummer, not care what other people think. So, you know, and your advice is very similar to that. You're going to have to be prepared to just not care what other people think and just keep driving ahead. And I'm going to ask you another question, which may be very similar. You may answer it the same way. Just advice in general to young people looking to start a career in today's fast-paced and increasingly complex world, where most of them are going to be entrepreneurs. But what would you say to people? You're back in Ethiopia. What would you say to young people about starting a career today? Nothing's ever a replacement for hard work. There are no shortcuts to success. <laughs> no, because I, and I, I, I say that often actually to my mentees, because I think in also this very fast paced world, social, social media driven world, 
there is this tendency to believe that the shiny thing is the always. And there's a tendency to believe that the path to that is actually all glorious because nobody shares anything negative. And so it's, it's sort of like, you just have to work hard. There's like, I mean, some people get lucky and they don't have to, but you know, it's, it's sometimes that simple is work hard and be persistent um, and do what you love. Like, don't, you know, I think if you do what you love, those things become easy. If you don't, they become miserable. Sarah, this has been fantastic. You've covered a lot of ground and given our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you very much. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.